each and every day we get upon this earth is soaked with meaning and purpose. The challenge is we get so used to the routine, so lulled by the mundane, our days start to blend together and fade with familiarity. If we're not careful, we can look back and realize we've wasted what we've been given. But if we could begin to understand the brevity of this life, the eternal implications of how we live now, we can start to live our lives with deeper purpose and urgency. Each day becomes a possibility for purpose. Each moment becomes an opportunity for meaning. The book of James calls us to live out this brief moment we've been given upon this earth with wisdom, with urgency, with significance. It beckons you, don't waste your life. Well, good morning, Rice City. How are we doing? Man, it is good to get to see you. Uh, like Jason said, I come to you by way of Arizona. I don't know if you guys remember, there was a guy up here that had big plugs named Nolan. Uh, he's planting a church in Arizona. The crazy part is, is he's actually uh, being coached by our church. So he's a part of our church planting coaching network. And it was really funny. I met him and then I got signed up for this cohort and I saw that there was a pastor from Oregon in that cohort. And it was just really weird how God connected all these dots to uh, uh, get me to meet Jason. And I've just I've man, I've fallen in love with this place and what you guys are doing here in this city. And the thing that I love the most about uh, Jason and his wife is just how they speak about you, the church, the people here, what you guys are doing, how you're advancing the kingdom of God. And man, I think it's just so important everywhere in the world for the church to be who we're supposed to be. But specifically, again, from Arizona, we hear the reports in Portland, things are not going super well here for the church. So what you're doing, man, it matters. It is an absolute huge deal. And I'm excited and honored to get to be here with you. I do have a picture so you can see they were going to be with me. I, I do have an incredible, incredible family. The greatest gift that God has ever given me is in that beautiful woman on the right. Her name is Ashley. Um, I know that Jesus, you know, has to, he's forgiven us of our sins. I still don't know what her sins are. Like she's literally the most amazing human I've ever met. She's just incredible. And we've had two uh, uh, products of passion. This is my daughter, McKenna, who is almost 14. She's hilarious. She is a practical jokester. Anytime I come home and it's dark out, she's going to be hiding somewhere trying to scare me. And I love it and I hate it. And then my 10-year-old son, Brayden, is just the funniest kid in the world. If he was here, he'd be hitting the gritty and just doing all kinds of silly stuff. And God has been really good to me, man. If I've never, if I never get anything else besides these three, I will be an incredibly blessed man. They were going to be here. And then we looked at flights of prices. And so they're in Arizona. But, um, <laughs> Like Jason said, this is not the time if you're thinking about visiting Arizona. I know a lot of people move from here to us. Uh, it's for the winters. The winters is why you go to Arizona, okay? I saw you guys doing an event at the park in July, and I was like, that is something my brain cannot comprehend, because if that was in Arizona, we would all die. It would be 115 degrees outside, but what we would do is do an event in February out in the park, and it would be 80 degrees and glorious to the glory of God, right? Um, Arizona is an amazing city, but, or it's an 
amazing state. We're in a little pocket of Phoenix called Gilbert in Queen Creek. It was actually an old Mormon farming town and wildly different culturally than where you sit. But I am excited to get to come and hang out with you. I do believe that God has kind of given me a word for us as we continue in this series in the book of James. And so if you brought a Bible, I would encourage you to open them to James chapter 2. It should only take us two or three hours to get through this passage, but I'll, I'll do my best. I'm just kidding. You'll be out of here and going to lunch in no time. But James chapter 2, if you brought a Bible, you turn there. I'm going to pray for us quickly and we'll jump in. Father, Lord, we're so thankful for this place and this house and the pastors that run it. God, we're so thankful for the vision you've given them to reach the city, to change the, the hope of this city. And God, we know right now in this place, the Bible is really clear. Where two or more are gathered, God, you're here with us. You're speaking, Holy Spirit, you're in this, this room. And so for these next few moments, would you just quiet our minds? Would you still our hearts? Would you silence our phones and let us hear your voice? Let us walk out of this room different than we walked in here, that we don't come to open an old ancient uh, history book, but we come to open the revealed word of God that is sharper than a two-edged sword that will change us if we'll allow it. So Holy Spirit, have your way. It's in the mighty name of Jesus, all God's people said. Amen. I was thinking about it this week. I was raised Catholic. Anybody raised Catholic in this place? All right. When I say that I was raised Catholic, I am like Catholic through and through. Irish Catholic through my blood. The Goulding family is up in Northern Ireland. It's like the Goulding clan. We are an Irish Catholic family. My grandfather, my great-grandfather was actually in the Irish Republican Army, okay? Uh, they did a lot of wild stuff. He eventually gets arrested in Ireland, and he had an opportunity to either spend the rest of his life in prison or the Catholic Church actually figured out a way to smuggle him out of prison and into the United States. And he worked for a Catholic Church for the rest of his life in Chicago. He then had my grandfather and my dad. And so we've all been culturally Catholic for as long as I can remember. I was raised in church. I was baptized as an infant. I did the first Holy Communion. I did the uh, confirmation stuff that you do. I could literally, when I was 12 or 13 years old, I could recite an entire Catholic mass in Latin because we used to every other week go to a Latin only mass. I didn't know what any of it meant, but I could do all the prayers and say all of the things. There was one point, my mom made us do everything. Like we were always involved. I was the guy that would have to go up when the, the priest would do the readings and I would hold the like big golden Bible. And I'm like, man, this thing is crazy. Like where do you even get these Bibles? But I was like two feet taller than the priest. So I'd have to be like this to hold it for him. And then he would do the reading. And this weird thing happened when uh, we were in the back. My brother and I were both altar boys. And again, the Catholic church, one of the traditions you'll see, we have communion around here. And we believe that communion is a powerful thing, but it's a, it's a metaphor representation of what Jesus did on the cross, right? When he said, take my body and eat it, he wasn't meaning literal. It's one of the differences between us and Catholicism is the Catholic Church teaches the doctrine of transubstantiation, which literally means that when the priest stands there and consecrates the body in blood, that they believe that it literally becomes Jesus's physical body and his physical blood that we eat and take in together. Now, again, it's a whole nother sermon for another day, but what that, why that matters for us is once you've converted the wine into Jesus's blood, you can't just pour it down the sink. I didn't know what they did with it until I was an altar boy and went in the back with the priest and the deacon and come to find out what they do is they all at the end of the mass, they pour all the cups back into one big chalice and in the back you pass it around and you all drink it. And I remember the priest takes this big old swig of it and it's real wine. And then I'm sitting there like 12, 13 years old and he passes it to me. 
And I'm like, is this a test? Like, what's going to happen? Is somebody watching me, you know? And they're looking at me like, hey, man, this is like your holy duty. And I'm like, all right, man, I'll take one for God, right? And so I take a big old swig of this wine, and I'm looking at my brother, and we are just knuckleheads, right? Like me and my brother got into all kinds of trouble. And so I pass it to him, and he's like, Pfft. and this dude just chugs the whole rest of the wine. And I'm like, all right, man, I guess this is what we're doing. Like being an altar boy was now much more exciting than it was before, right? So we go, and we sit back down in the little front part. We've got these robes on, and the robes always like came to my knees because I was so much taller than everybody else. And you then have to walk out in the Catholic procession where you have the priest in the front in the robes and you get the deacons and they're in the robes. And then you've got a guy holding the cross and me and my brother both holding candles, right? And it's like this holy thing and there's like angels singing. And all of a sudden my brother, I can look over and I can tell the wine that he drank is starting to affect him a little bit. And I'm just like laughing like, oh man, this dummy, right? He's holding this candle and doesn't realize that the candle is starting to tip back a little bit until the candle tipped so far back that the hot wax that was coming off of it actually fell down his neck. And I'm looking over to the side, and you've got like my grandma, who's like the most pious, holy Catholic lady in the world that has never said a cuss word in her life, and my parents are there. And I'm looking at my brother, who's like tipsy from the communion wine, pouring wax down his back. And in this moment, he literally drops the candle as he screams, like, oh, he drops the candle. The candle falls and hits the kid that's holding the big cross. So that kid loses his balance, and he falls, the cross hits the ground, it's all tile, it reverberates in the whole room and I'm just sitting there like man we are killing it like just <laughs> awesome like <laughs> whatever awards there are in heaven we're definitely getting them and the reason that that I tell you that and kind of start there is again it's not a knock to the Catholic Church there's a lot of Catholics who really love Jesus and on the majority of the essential doctrines we believe the same things as the Catholic I believe the Catholics were all going to the same heaven it took my while my grandma a while to be convinced that I was going to heaven now that I was a Christian but Regardless, there are tons of Catholics who really love Jesus. I never understood and connected the dots between all of the religious things that we did. I could recite all the prayers, do all of the things. I spent a lot of time in the proximity of the people of God and the house of God. But what had never actually happened was this internal transformation that the Bible says is the starting point of a relationship with God. And sometimes what happens is, is we, because we've been raised in church or we've been around things, we pick up cultural Christianity. It's not just the Catholic church that does this. Our temptation is to just become cultural Christians as well. And then we see the book of James. And the book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus, is kind of this spiritual health check type of book where he forces us to look at our lives and to really examine what is happening out here. And that maybe, just maybe, the way that we live, the way that we talk to each other, our, our behavior, our actions, maybe, just maybe, those things are much more indicative of what's going on in here, in the condition of our soul then we realize. And James has a basic premise through his entire book that will crescendo in where we are today in the second half of James chapter 2, where he talks about the fact that faith, yes, it's this thing that's in you that's private and it's personal and it's invisible to the outside world. You could be transformed and be made right with God through an instantaneous belief that Jesus is who he says that he is. But that faith should begin to change you. That faith should be evidenced by the people around you. It will take time. It won't happen overnight. But you should begin to live differently as a result of the faith 
that you have. Here's kind of what I want to unpack for the next couple minutes with you in James chapter 2, is that here's what I think real faith is. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. Here's kind of the big idea or the sermon in one sentence that I want you to walk away from. Here's what real faith is, friends. Real faith is belief with deeds, okay? We have to be really careful not to separate these two because it's belief, but it's belief that then fuels actions and deeds. And the evidence of your faith should be seen by the way that you live with the people around you. You track with me so far? Okay. James chapter 2, here's how he begins in verse 14. He says, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Here's the question that he asks that we all have to answer this morning. Can a faith like that save anyone? James's basic premise is pretty simple, but it's deeply profound. He says, if your faith doesn't begin to change your behavior, if it doesn't start to change the way that you live, how can you be so sure that that faith will get you into heaven one day? He says, the faith that can't change the way that you're living today, the way that you engage with your parents, the way that you interact with your coworkers, the way that you speak to your spouse, if the faith you have can't change that, maybe, just maybe, you should begin to wonder, can that faith get you into heaven? What is James really asking? James is going to bring up the idea. He's really kind of building a case that to claim to have faith but no actions, it's more proof of a dead faith than it is bad actions. He's saying don't focus on the actions, but allow the lack of the actions to make you begin to question your heart and your relationship with Jesus and go, are you really actually a Christian? Because if you've never been told this, you cannot get faith. You cannot be saved. You cannot be made right with God, justified before a holy God through osmosis. You cannot get it from your parents. You can't get it by just sitting in proximity to a place in a house of God. At some point, you have to have a personal revelation that Jesus is who he says that he is for yourself. You have to have a moment where you see the depravity of your sin. You see the brokenness of who you are, not who the world is, and not who in general, and not what in general sin is, but specifically, individually for you. You begin to realize that, man, in my own state, I'm broken. And I remember the moment I could walk away from the Catholic Church, I did, because it was nothing but religious activity for me. And the hard part is I went full into this world. And I said, man, I tried the church thing, right? I tried the church thing. It didn't work for me. So I went full in after this world. And I took in everything that this world had to offer me. And luckily, through the grace of God, I hit rock bottom pretty quickly. And 19 years old, I drug myself back in the doors of church as a freshman in college, trying to figure out what's the point of all of this. I don't get any of this. Like all these things, they're all fleeting. And I feel joy and satisfaction for a moment, but then it's gone. And I walked in the doors of a church very much like this. It was in a warehouse, concrete floors, and a guy got up on stage in jeans and a t-shirt, and he preached the gospel. And he talked about the transforming power that Jesus wants to have inside of all of us and how it starts with belief. It starts with making a decision to trust him as your Lord and Savior. And what James is saying is that that, friends, which often in the American church has been heralded as like that's the finish line and it's all about this moment where you say this prayer and you come to the front and we all cry together and that that's the end all be all. And I'm not saying that that's not important. It's a powerful step. If you've never had it, I would encourage you to start there. 
But maybe, just maybe, that prayer, that moment, that instant transformation, it is not the finish line, but it is the firing gun that starts the race. And now you and I have a race to run. We have a kingdom to expand. We have people to protect. We have a mission to be advanced. What James is saying is that we have to examine our life and begin to realize, friends, if, if our life doesn't look any different after following Jesus, maybe, just maybe, we haven't really actually met Jesus. Here's how he continues. He says this in verse 15. He says, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no clothing, and you say uh, goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? Okay, verse 17 is powerful. Highlight, underline, circle. It says, see, so you see faith by itself, in and of itself, faith alone isn't enough. It's only when the faith produces good deeds that it is, if it doesn't produce good deeds, it is dead and useless. He's saying this idea that it's all about this prayer and it's all about this instant moment. That's by itself, it isn't enough. And what has happened is, is we have sold a facade to the world in the American church. And we've told people that God wants to make you wealthy and prosperous. And he wants to give you your best life now. And does God want to give you an abundant life? Yes and amen. But that also can come with some really difficult and trying circumstances. But here's the beauty of a life of faith. Is that in it you will find meaning and significance and worth and purpose, and real, true, soul-level satisfaction. Not fleeting and temporary moments of happiness, but real, authentic joy. He says, but we've got to be really careful to not become the community that says, yeah, 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 we're the Christian people. And then we look at all the hurting and broken people around us, and we just don't do anything about it. He says, we should be the people that look at the world that's hurting and broken, and we're the ones that rush in and do something about it. Now, again, this is the part that we have to be really careful about, and I, my prayer is today you wouldn't hear what I'm not saying. It's the most dangerous part about a message like this is that you will hear what I'm not saying. What I'm not telling you today is that you and I have to work to earn the favor of God. Okay, again, I live in a community that is highly Mormon populated. The Mormon church teaches a different gospel. They use the same words, they say the same Jesus, but they are sending a different message. They believe that grace is what actually covers the last 10%, but 90% of you getting made right with God and getting to heaven is based on what you do. That is a message from the pit of hell. The Bible says that while you and I were still dead in our trespasses, while we were still far gone, while we weren't even thinking about God, he went on a rescue mission to us to save us. And Jesus has rescued us from the pit of our sin, the pit of hell, and he set us back on our right path. And now that will begin to do a work in us. Here's the hard part with the book of James. It's why the famous reformer Martin Luther had kind of issues with the book of James. He called it the epistle of straws because on the surface level, this message seems like it stands in contrast to other parts of the Bible, right? Paul famously in the book of Romans says that faith isn't something that you and I can do on our own. He says that faith is something that you actually get through grace. It's something that you don't work for. And so it's like, well, how can James say that, that faith that doesn't have works is dead? And then Paul, on the other hand, says that you, it's only something that Jesus does, and it's nothing that you do. And here's the tension where these two come together. Again, these guys are not preaching different messages. It is the same gospel. These were brothers that did ministry together. What Paul is focused on primarily 
is how you and I are justified before God. Okay, the way that we're justified before God is a moment of faith. We believe it. We accept Jesus into our heart. It is not something that we earn. But how we're justified before people, how do the people in our lives begin to see and realize the transformation that is happening internally, that's private, that is personal? It begins to come out of us in our deeds, okay? What Paul is saying is we're justified before God through faith. What James is saying is that we're justified before man through our works that are empowered through grace. You tracking with me? The order matters. The order is tremendously important. Because you and I cannot work to earn salvation, but the proof of our salvation is that from that grace and from that place of love, we can't help but produce good works. I have a couple questions for you that I would ask you to ask yourself this morning. Some litmus tests of how are we doing spiritually. The first one that I see here that we have to ask ourselves is, is our faith, is it just lip service or is it actually lifestyle? Is it something we just say with our mouth or is it something that we actually live and here's what I know. Lip service is easy. It's cheap. It costs you nothing. But lifestyle, friends, it's difficult. I want to tell you today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would tell you that there is not a better decision that you could ever make. I would also warn you that there's not a more expensive investment that you will ever make. Does Jesus have a life for you on offer that is better than anything that you could ever conjure up and make and manufacture on your own? Yes and amen. But sometimes it's really difficult. And the hard part is, is we don't get to dip our toes in the water of faith. This, this faith thing, it is an all or nothing. Jump into the deep end and watch what God will do with a life that is surrendered to him. But we've got to be really careful because we live in a culture that says, no, nah, just, just play lip service. Just say the right things, do the right things when you're in here. And then when you're out there, man, do whatever you want to do. And we as people can become really chameleons. And James sits with this message of contrast going, maybe, just maybe, if that's you, you might have a faith, a faith that is fake. It's not real. It's not authentic. Because if you've really been touched by Jesus, man, your life will look different. I've recently started getting into sneakers. My, my 10-year-old son, I don't know how. It's not like there's something in our house. My 10-year-old can tell you anything about any sneaker that's out there. This kid is on every website. There's a place I didn't even realize you can send shoes. They'll authenticate them for you. They'll give you a value of them. And so my son's got Jordan 1s. He's got all these shoes. He got this pair of shoes that he'd been like waiting for forever. And he gets them. I swear to you, he puts them on and he's walking around the house and he's walking like this. And I'm like what is wrong with you? Like, did something happen or the shoe's not comfortable? And he's like, no, bro, I don't want to get any creases on them. <laughs> and I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, when you, when you walk like this, you get creases on your shoes. And I'm like, dog, you're 10 years old. Like, what are you, are you going to resell them? Like, what are you trying to do? You're like building a business? So this kid literally made his mom order him anti-crease things that go in his shoe. It's a hard piece of plastic that's wildly uncomfortable just so his shoes don't get creased. So because of this, I've kind of ended up in the sneaker world. And the shoes that I'm actually wearing today, I used them for, I wore them for a sermon illustration. These are what are called Panda Dunks, okay? Any of the shoe guys in here, you'll know what they are. They're, they're cool shoes. They got released a couple years ago. They were selling for 250 bucks. I'm a pastor, so I barely have $2.50 to buy a pair of shoes, let alone $250. And so I found out about this Chinese website that sells Panda Funks, they're fake dunks. 
32 bucks. So I was like, I can spend 32 bucks for my 10 year old to think I'm cool. So I ordered these shoes from this website. They literally ship with like this Chinese lettering in there, all the fake authentication paperwork and I'm rocking them. My son thinks I'm cool and that's the reason that I bought them. But one of the guys in my life group at my house is a huge sneakerhead. used to resell them. And so I asked him, I was like, Adam, how can you tell if these shoes are real? Like they, on the surface, when I look at pictures of real ones of mine, they look identical. And he takes them and he's examining them and looking at them. He's like, man, these things are incredible. Like these are great fakes. And then he made me take the shoe off. And the way that he could tell that these were fake panda dunks and not the real ones is he looked at the tag on the inside. And the tag on the inside has some lettering and some language and some specific markings on it that any real shoe authenticator can tell I got fake dunks. All of you, you can't tell. You think I'm cool and you think I have real dunks. But somebody that knows what they're looking at can tell that they're fake how? By looking at the inside. Here's why I tell you that. What James is saying is that our faith is actually very similar. That sometimes on the outside, we can learn to play church. And sometimes one of the most dangerous places we can find ourselves is sitting in the house of God, but being far from the heart of God. We can find ourselves sitting in the place of worship and thinking that because we're here, that means that we're, we're in. And friends, it can be a really dangerous place. My ask, my challenge, my submission to you today is do you have a real faith? Is your faith fake or is it real? And sometimes the only way that you can tell the fakes from the reals, you've got to be able to look at what's on the inside. It's what's so dangerous about church is we can't see the external, but God knows the heart. So the question for us, again, is is our faith just lip service or is it actually lifestyle? Is our life different from having followed Jesus? James says, if not, we might be in dangerous water. Here's how he continues in verse 18. He says, I understand that some of you may argue, yeah, some people have faith, but other people have deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? He says, I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. He says, if you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God, good for you. He says, even the demons believe this. And they tremble in fear. Okay, James goes right at the heart of the argument that goes, yeah, but I know a lot of stuff about God. I can like quote Bible verses that I've memorized. I can tell you all the things I have to do and be for the people to think that I'm a Christian. And James goes right at the heart of this. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. to Again, there's a bunch of Jews, cultural Jews that are reading this letter. And he says, I know you guys think that it's a huge deal that you're the only ones in your community that believe in the oneness of God and that all the people in your culture believe these polytheistic multi-gods and you guys think you're special and separate because you believe in the oneness of the one true God. He says, but you got to understand even the demons believe the same thing. When you read the Gospels, when you read Jesus' interactions... Every time he came into encounters with the demonic, they knew who Jesus was up here. They intellectually understood who he was, his power, his authority, what he could do. The difference was is they were refusing to submit their lives and their will to him. Friends, the question that James implores you and I to ask ourselves this morning about our faith about our faith, whether or not we know it's real, the question we have to ask is, is our faith dynamic or is it demonic? Here's what a demonic faith looks like. It's one that will acknowledge God with our head and with our lips and with our words, but not with our hearts and not with our actions. 
will know things about God, but will refuse to make him the Lord of our life and begin to live differently. I don't know if you guys have been a part of a wedding. I say, I don't know if you've been, but most of us have been a part of a wedding. What am I saying? Here's the truth about weddings. I, I do a lot of them. Weddings for the bride and the groom, they don't really cost them much. I know they think it does. It, it costs the bride's father usually a lot of money. But for the bride and the groom themselves, the wedding, it doesn't cost them that much. The marriage, on the other hand, that marriage, if it's going to be successful, if it's going to be done for the glory of God, that marriage is going to cost them a lot. And for anybody who's been married for more than 10 minutes, you know, you know, marriage forces you to look at the parts of you that you don't necessarily want to look at. One of the greatest gifts that my wife is to me is she gently, in love, in kindness, in patience, she helps me see the parts of me that I don't naturally see. The parts that I would, to impress people like you, I would just hide and try to make pretend like they're not there. And my wife helps me see those blind spots. The wedding, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was a night, it was a fun, it was a party. That's what the starting process of faith is. But the wedding, the submitting to, the trusting to, the learning to read each other, that's the costly part that the Bible calls sanctification. It's the process of being made into the image of God. Justification happens in an instant, happens in a moment, happens between us and God. But sanctification, the process of God working through us, the God working in us and working all the things out of us, it can be a difficult process. Is our faith dynamic? Or is it just demonic where we acknowledge him with our words, but not our deeds? Here's how James concludes this section of James 2. He says in verse 20, how foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is utterly useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right by God with his actions when he offered his son Isaac to the altar? You see his faith and his actions. Notice this. Don't miss this. They worked together. They were a beautiful union together. His actions actually made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God. Notice this. Belief in his heart, personally, private. He believed God. And it was counted to him righteous because of his faith. He was restored with God because of a belief, not because of an action. Don't miss this. But... He was even called the friend of God. Verse 24, he says, So you see, we're shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. James starts by saying, use Abraham, right? He's writing to a bunch of Jews who Abraham was like the, the original LeBron James. Like this guy is the goat of all goats. He's the guy that started the nation of Israel. He's the guy that started the people of God. He says, but Abraham was made right in a moment of belief, but then his faith was put to the test when God asked him to do some things that he didn't understand. When God asked him to do some difficult things, like taking his son, his son of promise that was given to him at 100 years old after thinking he would never have a child and God gave him a son named Isaac and then God asked him will you trust me with the thing that you love the most he says will you take your son Isaac and go to the mountaintop and sacrifice him and he says that faith that was internal that was private that was personal that was for him it worked itself out of him by his actions and what he did 
and the people around them, their lives were impacted by being able to see that, okay? And then this is the last illustration that James uses. In verse 25, he goes to this person named Rahab. He says, Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. James uses the greatest juxtaposition in the world. He uses Abraham, the pioneer of the faith, the guy that was like, this guy's the ultimate, right? This is the, the first guy outside of Jesus in the Old Testament. He's like pound for pound, the most important person in the Bible. You have Abraham, who was justified by belief, but worked itself out in his actions. And then he said, there's also Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. He, he's using a picture of the greatest of us and the least of us. A woman who was a, a woman who sold her body for money. She was justified by her belief as well. He's saying, this is what the grace of God is. It's for all people. It's for people who think they've gone too far. It's for people who think they have it all together. The grace of God is for both of us. And you are justified with your belief, but that belief can't stay in here. It has to work itself out so that the people around us can begin to see what we're the church are supposed to be. The hope of the world, a city on a hill, a light into the darkness. And friends, I'm telling you right now, the world is desperate for the church to wake up and to remember who we are and to remember the calling that is on our life. And as culture keeps telling us to shrink back, to push away, to go into a closet, it is our responsibility to know that Jesus is in us, allow the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and go through the difficult process of being made into the image of God so that we can walk out the doors of church and we can burn for the glory of God and we can continue to expand his kingdom because without us, there is no plan B to reach this world, friends. You and I are it. Here's the last question I would have you ask yourself this morning about where your faith is. Is your faith producing good fruit or bad fruit? This is as simple as this message gets. Sometimes the only way to tell what a tree really is, is you have to look at the fruit of what it is. We bought a property a couple years ago that had a bunch of trees on it. There was one tree in particular, we had no idea what it was. I could have told you to come over to my house and say, hey, look, look at this apple tree. And then that apple tree, as it started to produce oranges, you would have looked at me like I was crazy. Why? Because we all inherently know in nature that something is what it produces. Why do we think you and I are exempt from that? What James is saying is that maybe, just maybe, our, our actions, what he's going to say in James chapter 3 is our words, the way that we speak, what we do, maybe it tells us more about what's going on in here than we could ever imagine. So the question this morning is, is what do we do? Okay, this is kind of a throat punchy, like hopefully I punch you all in the throat equally. Do we all feel a bit offended and like, okay, we can do better. The question is, and what I want to leave you with is, so what? What do we do? This is not a work harder, do more, read your Bible more, just do better. This is the beautiful and complex part of following Jesus. How do we have a faith that produces real life in us? We need to learn to trust Jesus more. We need to spend time with Jesus more. We need to spend more time in worship. We need to allow him to go through the gentle process of pruning us and removing from us the parts of us that we don't like, the things that we've just picked up with going through life, the things that have been done to us, the decisions that we've made. And so I close today by telling you a story. There was a guy in the 1850s named the Great Blondine. And this guy made his living by walking tightropes. 
And he would do all these crazy feats, and people would come from miles and miles away to watch him do his thing. Well, in 1956, he came to the United States. This is pre-internet. This is pre-television. And somehow, this guy was able to get a massive crowd to come and watch him do what he did. Because there was a really wealthy guy that said, I'm going to get a rope strung across the Niagara Falls. And we're going to all come, and we're going to watch the great Blondine walk across this tightrope with no safety harness over the Niagara Falls. And so some 30,000 people gathered to watch him. And he would walk across the rope. He did it blindfolded. He did it backwards. He just started doing all kinds of crazy stuff. At one point, he took a stove out there. He cooked an egg on the tightrope, ate it for the people, and the crowd would just erupt. And they go, man, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. This is amazing. And then he said, I'm going to try and do it with a wheelbarrow. I'm going to push a wheelbarrow across it. You guys think I can do it? And the crowd's like, of course, you're the great Bondine. Of course you can do it. So he walks across the tightrope with a wheelbarrow and the crowd's going nuts and then he goes you guys think I could walk across the tightrope with a wheelbarrow and a person inside of it and they're like of course you can you're the great blondie this is the best thing we've ever seen he goes okay all I need is one person to get in the wheelbarrow and we'll go across and the crowd went silent and they were like oh actually yeah never mind like that's great in theory terrible in practicality The reason that I tell you that, friends, is that is our invitation this morning, is not to figure out how to get across the tightrope ourselves, not to learn to to balance, learn how to carry a wheelbarrow, learn how to do it all. This is the beautiful news of the gospel, is that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, he stepped out of heaven. He lived a life that we could never live. He died the death that the Bible says that we all deserve to die, because in all of us is this thing called sin. Yours might be worse or better than mine, but we all have it. We're all stained by the same thing. But what Jesus did to satisfy the penalty that the Bible says is the thing that we have to pay on our own if we don't accept what Jesus did, is death. Death has to come because of sin. But Jesus, on the cross, he paid the penalty for our death. He conquered death, came back to life, and is seated at the right hand of the Father today with his invitation saying, just trust me. Get in the wheelbarrow with me. Let me lead you. Let me guide you. Let me produce out of you good works and great things. Here's the so what for all of us. How do we walk with real faith and make a real impact on this world? Get in the wheelbarrow. Be willing to trust Jesus with the parts of your life that you struggle to trust him with. Trust him with your future relationships that right now you're going, man, I don't don't know if I can. Trust him with your marriage that's hurting and broken right now. Trust him with the business that's struggling. Trust him with the finances and allow him through the beautiful process of the Holy Spirit working in you and through you to begin to do things you could never imagine. So Father, I ask, God, with a room full of people here, that, God, we would have an honest moment before you, not uh, out of vindication, not out of judgment, but we would ask the question, how are we doing with our faith? And that this morning, right now, God, everybody who's here is here on purpose, is here for a reason, and I pray that they would have a holy moment with you, have an, take an honest assessment of where they are spiritually, and that they would begin to confess that to you, and allow you to come in and transform those parts of their heart. And God, I pray for this city, for these pastors, for these leaders, that God, this city, this state is desperate for the people of God to be the city on a hill that they're supposed to be. God, would you start with the people that are in here? 
Jesus, we need you. We can't do this without you. It is in your holy, mighty, and powerful name that all God's people said, amen.